Okay, I think we can uh, slowly get started with our with our Twitter space. Uh, welcome everyone for joining us. Um, just a few technical aspects from our end before we start. Please do know, as always, this space uh, is being recorded. Uh, you can leave any questions as replies to to this space. You can see it at the bottom of your uh, of your screen. And maybe depending on how the conversation goes, we could potentially open the floor to some of you. Uh, you do have the option to request uh, to, to speak. So let's see how the conversation goes and uh, take it from there. Um, so let's then begin. Uh, I am Katerina Ferinha. I'm a communications officer at ECDPM. And today we are going to discuss the Team Europe approach, which was born in the context of COVID-19, initially conceived as a way to brand European collective support to partner countries in response to the pandemic. And yet it also wants to respond to longer term political trends and to a growing sense that the European Union and its member states are not visible enough, particularly in contrast to China, the United States, and other external powers. At ECDPM, we recently published a paper looking at the state of play of Team Europe, as it seems to have reached the uh, crucial point of having to turn nice words into action, which is where everything becomes less clear. Vince Chadwick, a journalist at DevEx, had some thoughts and criticism on the way Team Europe's way forward is presented in the paper. So we challenged him to uh, have this conversation with the two authors of the paper, Alexei Jones and Katya Sergeyev, to take stock of what is happening with Team Europe. So today uh, we're joined by all three, Vince, Alexei and Katya. So welcome to all three of you. Uh, and let me pass the microphone as it was to Alexei to ask you as some of the people who are listening or will be listening to this may not be aware of the content of the paper you wrote. Uh, could you tell us what are some of the issues that you identified that are preventing Team Europe initiatives from moving from paper to reality? And after that, we can open the floor for all three of you to uh, discuss. So over to you, Alexei. Hi, thanks, Kata. Good morning. Morning, Vince and Katya and every, everyone listening in. Uh, thanks for this uh, introduction, uh, Katarina. And uh, yes, indeed, I think that the Team Europe approach, as you rightly said, was born in the context of COVID, but has now become a, a buzzword, a real brand of how the EU and the member states and other relevant European actors want to make a difference in the world in, in the area of development and international cooperation. And maybe just to answer quickly your question, or maybe come back to the way you, you asked the question, I don't think perhaps at, the, at this stage there's anything preventing uh, Team Europe from, from delivering uh, results, but there are many, many open questions, outstanding issues, as precisely I think the first two years of the approach uh, has been essentially about getting and creating this momentum and getting the member states on board uh, to buy into this approach, uh, to act more collectively, more visibly, have more impact. Uh, and I think that was perhaps the easiest part of the of the process uh, to communicate and get everyone to agree on what we should do and how to do it. 
Now, the real issue, the real difficulty with regards to Team Europe and to Team Europe initiatives, which are a specific, uh, I would say, product or deliverable of Team Europe, uh, the real difficulty is is turning this good mood, this good momentum, these good intentions into, into concrete action. And this is the stage we are in precisely at the moment, this transition phase from uh, from the design of the Team Europe initiatives, which were still quite conceptual, getting everyone to agree uh, on, 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 on what to do. And now the, the main challenge we, we try to emphasize in a paper is to turn these actions, these, yeah, these words, these promises, these intentions into actions. I will leave it at that and maybe we'll uh, certainly go into, the, into more detail in, in the discussion. Okay. Yeah. Maybe so, um, yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, so basically, we identified um, a couple of open questions in terms of of the things that still have to be resolved uh, by the Team Europe. Uh, so there are there are quite so many challenges in terms of coordination, uh, governance structures of the TEIs because, as we know. There are over 150 of them, and uh, it, it might be quite a hassle. And the second more broad, well, broader thing is, of course, related to uh, ownership, uh, consultations of, of partner countries and local stakeholders. So, uh, yeah, so this is the more broad overview. And uh, Alexei, do you want to come in? No, I think let, let's open the discussion. I don't know if Vince, you 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 made some very relevant comments, and I think the whole point of of this morning's uh, discussion is really to come back on some of them, um, and maybe just at this stage also clarify that uh, we are not, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of the Commission or even trying to defend Team Europe or Team Europe initiatives for that matter. I think we also have a you know a critical look at things whilst also being uh, constructive and, and see how this fits in, in a broader evolution of EU development policy. But uh, I'm more than happy to kick off the discussion. So Vince, maybe why don't you shoot? Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks for this exchange. Um, yeah, I'm th it's funny listening to us. I mean, I can see we're all mostly members of the Brussels bubble on this call, but hopefully it, um, it goes beyond that. Um, in terms of people who are listening to it. I do sometimes wonder what the rest of the world would think listening to us just in this introduction, not, not to criticise you, and I, I speak this language as well by default through my work, but when we talk about TEIs and the Global Gateway and all this kind of stuff, I wonder how that lands sometimes in the rest of the world where they really only get the top lines of what Europe's trying to do. Um, and so it's that's one thing that I think perhaps even especially when we're thinking about Europe's brand, perhaps um, uh, is, is worth is worth keeping in mind. Um, I wanted to I, I was interested in the paper that you speak about how Team Europe has been a success so far. So that was one of my questions is why do you think it's been a success? Because that hasn't been necessarily my impression. My impression um, is uh, actually I wanted to uh, get, share a metaphor <laughs> that it sums up pretty well how I view Team Europe. Um, and I'm happy to be corrected by anyone on this, but this morning my, my son, who's three years old, was um, home sick from school and my partner and I were working. And, you know, kids, when they're three, they, they have this whole scheme, schematic vision in their head about the game that they're playing. You know, this car goes here and you do this and there's the map and this is the treasure and then and this is my son. So in this metaphor, the commission is my son. 
uh, telling everyone, this is what you're going to do. And my partner and I are France and Germany, and we walk over to the table that he's intricately laid out with these beautiful plans, and we just say, well, actually, I just want to do this, and we move one car. And then there's a second where he looks at us, he's very upset, and he said, well, that's not at all what you were supposed to do. And then quickly the system adjusts, and he incorporates our gesture <laughs> into his game and the situation goes on and everything's fine and it's a success. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of how Team Europe seems to be working, which is that, yes, though very laudable that the Commission wants to better steer all of the significant firepower of the member states, ultimately the member states are going to keep doing what they want to do with their money, which is their sovereign right. <laughs> and uh, we should be careful about being duped into thinking that somehow it's all part of this grand scheme with joint implementation, implementation logic and all sorts of stuff, when in fact it's just uh, a bow being tied around something that basically would have happened anyway. So discerning the difference between those two things I think is going to be one of the challenges as well. So there'd be some opening thoughts if that's not too uh, intricate. I'm sorry for the, the slightly strange metaphor so early in the morning. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right, and I think this is a point that that we that we make in the paper. But more more generally, for, for the past two years, indeed, that this whole Team Europe, uh, the emergence and, and the development of the of the concepts, selling it uh, has been a very Eurocentric process. I mean, and I think perhaps rightly so in in the way that there was a need to regalvanize perhaps the troops, so to say. Uh, around the, you know, the necessity to to be more visible, more impactful in the face of of the the, the growing competition and the geopolitical rivalries in, in in many parts of the world to which the, the EU is is confronted and losing ground. So there was a need, and and I think that's that's what made perhaps the success, so to say, of Team Europe so far is the the buy-in, and I, I would still say the political buy-in. Uh, at a very high level of uh, ministers and, and at the level of the president of the commission as well. I mean, this this concept and, and the approach has really been a, a success in that sense. I think there's there's been a lot of interest, uh, attention, attention around that. Around that. And uh, and from from what you know, I've been following uh, uh, EU development policy for the past fifteen years. Yes, uh, indeed, in Brussels, and that's that's the real the Brussels bubble so far. It's been a real internal discussion, uh, but. To my to my experience, from my experience, this has really been the concept and the approach which has you know su uh, created a sustained level of of interest and attention uh, among all the, the various initiatives and processes launched by by the EU, by the Commission in the past in the past years. So I think that's noteworthy, and in that sense, perhaps there's there's a difference now because of the context precisely where the EU cannot afford any longer to at least not give the impression that it is uh, acting collectively and, and willing to be more visible and more impactful. So in that sense, I think the success is, for the moment, there, in that sense, the political buy-in. But that's way, no, way uh, uh, insufficient. Uh, it's not enough to make a difference. And what the EU has promised is to be transformational. And this is where really there's, uh, there's the, the homework needs to be done now, is to turn all these words into, into action, as we say. As we say. Yeah, and I think I would like to add to that a little bit in terms of that we also realize the fact that um, the level of buy-in and interest among member states and among Team Europe actors may also vary. So it might depend a little bit on uh, whether whether they are in, in Brussels, whether they are based in the HQ, whether they are based in, in embassies. So, of course, there is always a very 
varying level of interest. Um, another thing is that I I do want to echo Alex, what Alexa is saying in terms of the ownership and, and the consultations, because I think that's one of the major um, lessons to be learned from this time around, that partners need to be included explicitly and already in the design phase when designing these Team Europe initiatives. Um, but yeah, I... I do still think that within those realms, there is there is a level of um, interest and interest that I I haven't seen before, as Alex said. How so? One of the, one of my criticisms uh, is how can it be a success if the countries that this is supposed to help and uh, impress still barely know what it's about, haven't been involved in the design process of these schemes. Um, uh, how can you correct a ship which is, as you say, it's, the metaphor is going everywhere, but, you know, it's more than half time now or roughly half time, but everything's baked in. There's been hundreds of meetings. There's joint implementation frameworks, there's things. And I suspect the commission would say, well, we talk to partner countries all the time. Uh, we've got our multi-annual uh, indicative programs, which are the result of hundreds of meetings with local governments and stuff, and that's fed back into the design of these initiatives. Um, is that enough? Uh, and it, given the criticism in your paper that we seem to share that the local country, the countries this is supposed to help haven't been involved, how can the process possibly succeed even from this point where we stand today? Vince, this is indeed the point that uh, we at TCPM have been have been really carrying for for a long time. I think since the very beginning. But it's a whole question about the the, the principle of ownership uh, in in development cooperation in general. In general, and clearly, as I said earlier, the process has been too Eurocentric. There are reasons for that, uh, but it's not too late. I think to to get. Uh, partner countries and their you know, respective local stakeholders involved in, in the implementation. And as you know, Team Europe uh, initiatives are, you know, are a composition of, of various uh, projects, programs from the EU, from the member states, from agencies, and, and increasingly also now from, from investors, development finance institutions, etc. And I think the main challenge here is to make sure that in the next stage of the process, the implementation, the monitoring, all these you know, other stages that come now, uh, that there's an active role, uh, so expressively you know, sought to give that role to, to uh, local stakeholders, partner countries, authorities, in, in giving them a space and a role in the, in the implementation. So far, uh, as we see it, this is not being considered at least formally. And I put formally in, you know, in inverted commas because one of the main challenges, again, to maintain that momentum, which we started the discussion on, is to make sure that these Team Europe, which are precisely characterized, and that was one of the ingredients for success, by their light and, and flexible. You know, it, it doesn't, didn't commit, or Team Europe members didn't need to commit very strongly until now to buy into heavy bureaucratic processes, which are indeed one of the, the main features of the EU. Uh, and that was a, a, an ingredient for success. So I think what we need now moving forward is to actively seek, inform, reach out to partner countries, you mentioned that indeed there are aligned, these Team Europe initiatives aligned to partner country priorities because there have been consultations uh, which were um, done in the context of the programming exercise. 
and and there are varying degrees to to what we understand in the extent to which stakeholders have been expressively uh, consulted or uh, you know involved in the design of the TIs. I think this the, the experience is is very diverse and perhaps not sufficient. Um, generally speaking but there's there's room to do so and i think there's now more recognition acknowledgement and pressure also from the member states and acknowledgement from the institutions themselves at least to to make more efforts in that regards and even just in the way they communicate around team europe which again has been very eurocentric until now i wanted to ask about that because in the paper you talk about the idea that there's going to be a team europe africa branding and things like that i mean the Global Gateway, which was the Commission's Belt and Road beating idea, um, which is underpinned by Team Europe initiatives to go deep into the, <laughs> the jargon, um, you know, it uh, is supposedly Europe's offer to the world. But now the President of the Commission has spoken about the idea that it might involve joint projects with India, Japan, other partners. Um, in the case of Team Europe, I mean, I made the point, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is a large multilateral development bank, but its members include China, Russia, um, uh, the United States is the biggest shareholder, I think, and it's part of Team Europe initiative. So one other question I have is how European is this thing anyway? Um, and how pure do we need to be about that? Um, and I'll, just while I'm hogging the mic for one second and a, a, a a related question on that is if, say, Germany does a project in a country and they want to say it's a Team Europe gesture, are they allowed to brand their bilateral work as Team Europe, in your view? They're my two questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, the, the question of the EBRD, I think, is, is still very, very sensitive, uh, also in the context of the... Uh, you know, architect, European financial architecture for for development, and and precisely for those reasons you you mentioned the, the shareholding, which is not is not only European, is is not only EU, but more broadly, I think the question about you know how to involve or reach out to other countries and maybe like-minded countries uh, priority um is is a, is a real issue i think the 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 point is to to show that the eu or team europe is not alone and and is seeking allies and also showing how it can join forces with some like-minded countries or allies in partner countries uh, and i think uh, you know like-minded i would i would exclude the the chinese and the russians of this world uh, at the moment but trying to seek at least for for communication purposes just to show that Europe is not alone and that it can, you know, find the allies to weigh more heavily and communicate together with with other partners. Uh, To answer your question, I mean, my understanding from the Team Europe initiatives uh, is generally that you need uh, uh, a minimum number. So let's say two or three uh, Team Europe members to make it a Team Europe initiative. Uh, It's true that until now, our understanding is that most, in most cases, it's really the EU component, the EU contributions to the Team Europe initiative that really guides and and creates the, the, you know, the Team Europe initiative around which then the member states 
uh, join in and chip in. But in some cases, and especially for the for the bigger member states, you mentioned Germany or France, uh, they are in, indeed in a capacity often to to provide that that leadership and and calling cards uh, and and you know create the, this uh, invitation to others to join in around projects uh, that, that that they are already carrying or intend to carry. The main can point. Just, can I just sorry yeah. just to, just to jump in and I, I'm eager to hear from others in the conversation as well if, if people have any questions. But just one thing you said when you said we won't consider China a like-minded partner. I wanted to share something that um, Remy Ryu, the head of the French Development Agency, told me in an interview a few years ago. He spoke about when he went to China. You know, Remy is one of the driving forces behind trying to create this alliance of public development banks to address climate change. Yeah. And he's a big one for global cooperation. And he said he went to China and he was having a meeting with some officials and the, the Chinese officials told him that they'd studied in detail the way France handles its national parks. And they said, we've looked at all the global models about how to preserve national parks and yours is the best. And so we've come and studied how you hand, you know, manage the, the native environment. And they'd done the same thing with deindustrialization de in the north of France and the coal pits that everyone would be familiar with. And Remy Ryu said to me in the interview, he said, I really wish people would stop viewing China as the enemy point <laughs> and start thinking about ways that perhaps we could learn something from China as well. And so I know that we always talk about the Belt and Road and we, we talk about predatory lending and the, the terrible examples that, that come across um, uh, that we'd all been studying and stuff. And I'm not trying to negate those, but I do think it's overly one dimensional to say this is Europe being democratic, transparent, open, wonderful partnerships on one hand. On the other hand, there's big bad China um, trying to steal uh, nationalised, you know, African countries' ports and things and, um, you know, take take control of the, their key infrastructure. I think there's more nuance to that. And I think if Team Europe is really is serious about alliances, it can't just discount one of the major players in the world, which is which is China, actually. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. And I think perhaps one, one thing, and, and maybe it's also different for, for bilateral agencies like, like AFD that Rémi Rie uh, directs, um, but I think there's a difference to be made, and I fully agree on the need to, to seek and, and to learn also from others, including China and other emerging players or big players and donors in, in Africa in particular, in the area of development cooperation, international cooperation on, on specific topics. There's, there's a lot to learn and you know, mutual uh, learning to, to, to be explored in that sense. But don't forget as well that this is being put in a, in a broader geopolitical landscape where, uh, you know, China uh, is, is also a big competitor, uh, you know, a competitor, but also a customer. I mean, it's, it plays on many different fields vis-a-vis the EU. And I think it's also for, for these reasons that... Uh, that we can seek maybe more specific opportunities to cooperate and learn from each other with China on specific topics uh, in, in partner countries in Africa. But the bigger picture is also that it is a major competitor and, and also you know, uh, seeking to, uh, to destabilize the, the influence of, of Europe in the world. But, uh, and, that's, and that's why, and that's why, just finally, that's why we need to look very carefully at the European procurement rules because we're talking here about projects and infrastructure projects under the current open procurement rules of the EU, a lot of these projects to build, the, the loan is provided by, say, EIB or EBRD, and then Chinese companies win the, the work. And so I, I went to Dakar in Senegal 
and the EIB had provided a loan to build a new bus route to um, improve the life of people living in Dakar and prevent congestion. And it was built by a Chinese company with Chinese workers. And of course, the, the citizens of, <laughs> of Dakar are going to be grateful to China. They're not going to necessarily know that that's thanks to an EIB loan because the EIB can only be 50% part of any project anyway. So I do think that procurement's a big part of this, that more, I, I don't understand why it's not a bigger part of the debate in Europe, especially if we're concerned about China. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. Fully agree. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Uh, just to jump in, if I might, if I may, Katia, just to tell our, our listeners that uh, maybe this is also a good point of the discussion to open the floor uh, to anyone that would like to chip in. So know that at the bottom of, of your screen, you should have a request mic uh, or request to be a speaker um, button. So if anyone would also like to chip in with, you know, a comment on what has been discussed or, you know, and with anything else that hasn't been discussed already, please do so. And we, we will glad you, uh, we will gladly uh, give you the, the floor as well. Uh, but for now, yeah, Katia, uh, you, can, uh, you can continue, sorry. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I, I was just going to re reiterate uh, that, yeah, of course, we completely agree with you, Vince, in, in, those, in those premises. And actually, it's quite interesting um, in terms of uh, how, how the EU and how the TEIs are or, or should also seek uh, synergies and cooperation with, with partners outside of the team Europe, like, for example, Norway or or UK or US or, or the multilateral organizations. So I, I think there is, a, there is a willingness to, to cooperate, but at the same time, yeah, uh, I completely agree that this is born in a certain geopolitical context, so which also defines uh, what can be done. Can, can, uh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll check if there's any questions and then I've got another question, but if anyone else wants to jump in, please go ahead. At the moment, there are no requests, so uh, uh, Vince, you can uh, you can continue. So, this question of of, of buy-in and stuff—it's quite interesting. I'm I'm not sure if um, everyone listening, um, and I'm, I could be a little bit off on this, but knows actually how the Team Europe process has been coming together so far. There's been these meetings of um, the heads of the European Development Agencies and the Director Generals of each member state. Um, who meet with the Commission for every two or three months and the Commission presents these batches, they're called batches of Team Europe initiatives and there's still, there's a meeting next week with a new batch and so, you know, the first time there was a batch, you know, it's like certain words in Brussels like non-paper people get excited about, I think batches and the, the word of the year, oh, there's a new batch, we need to read this batch and there's a huge list of projects and ideas and things that the Commission's come up with and the, these, the officials have these meetings and as far as I can understand they kind of listen and they give some, you know, some feedback and stuff. But basically everyone, the way it's been explained to me, I mean, they're private meetings. The way it's been explained to me is everyone kind of listens and lets all the projects go by and there's, an, there's a tacit understanding between all the different member states that they won't kick up a fuss about your project if you don't kick up a fuss about our project. And so the commission, it, it, it just goes on and on and on. And so now we've ended up with a list of 158 or something Team Europe initiatives. And just the sheer scale of it is just mind-boggling to me and I, I tip my hat to those at the commission who are in charge of keeping track of all of this but at the same time I do wonder whether if the whole 
purpose was impact and going big, which is how Team Europe was pictured and initially. You know, we've for too long Europe's been doing a little bit here and there, and now we're going to act in in certain countries in a big way. I wonder whether the whole thing's just got too big, too unruly, and it's going to dilute and defeat the initial purpose of at least how this was pitched when it was born out of COVID two years ago, which is like we're going to come and put Europe on the map in X country. Because to be honest, when I look at the some of the recent batches, documents, questions, the scale of the meetings and the organisation and now keeping track of whether it even is having an impact or not, it's beginning to look like a parallel programming process to me. And I suspect the commission will go, oh, no, that's outrageous. It's all part of the same thing and everything like that. But I, I do wonder whether the whole thing's just got out of hand and we would be better off focusing and kind of re-honing on, say, one thing in one country. Um, how just, do you guys see that? Before, sorry, just before we we, uh, we go back to, to your question, Vince, let me just uh, give the floor to Paul, who has requested to, uh, to speak. So let me just approve this. And uh, Paul, I guess you have the floor. Uh, you're muted right now. So... Um, whenever you want. <laughs> Hi there. Um, thank you very much for giving me the floor. My name's uh, Paul Nolan and I work for the European Institute of Peace in a communications capacity. Um, my, my question to you is um, about the communications of, of, of Team Europe uh, and the global gateway. I mean, as, as we've seen from this conversation, it seems like there has been a kind of strong top-down effort to communicate um, on this, um, and it is such a you know big project, you know, with 158 uh, initiatives going on. Um, making sense of all of this and packaging it in in Team Europe is extremely complex. Um, but I, I, I'm wondering um, if there is also a kind of bottom up push and and how that's being approached um, with regard to the partner countries where Team Europe is is active. Um, and I, I guess also, you know, regional authorities or, um, or or nations, European states as well, how they are communicating on this and, and what kind of incentives there can be for a more constructive, strategic um, communications plan on this. So it actually uh, registers uh, more with, um, with Europeans and, and with, with, you know, partner countries. Thanks. Yeah, I can yeah, come in with a few few thoughts and maybe also link that to to what uh, Vince was saying earlier about the, I mean the the pressure which the the delegations in particular were were put under and and just to to recall that the the design of the Team Europe initiatives was done actually as part of the of the programming exercise, so there were you know express uh, instructions given to the delegations in particular to do their usual programming exercise and within that to identify up to two team Europe initiatives per country and you know that that indeed uh, make you know it explains why we have now uh, over 150 TIs at country level but also regional and a few at the, at the global thematic level and I agree with you Vince I think perhaps and, and that's also linked to what Paul just said there has been a very top-down pressure put on, on you know the delegations and all the, the institutions in Brussels to to communicate and to push this through the programming exercise and I wouldn't be surprised that in a few years time only a few of these team Europe initiatives have really 
made it to the to the not even the finish line, but you know, I, I, we're still in the make or break phase. And I think this is also what we try to convey in the paper that there has been some momentum created, yes, uh, and that's quite unusual and noteworthy compared to other. Um, initiatives in the area of development cooperation, but now is really the the moment to to make this happen. So that's where the commission is trying to maintain that momentum to, to also, and that's the risk, make it a bit more complex. I think the the communication around Team Europe, as I said earlier, is is the easy part, uh, and and there are many questions on on also how the EU has been communicating and and giving visibility and making promises around. Team Europe Global Gateway uh, and now is in a position where it has and it cannot afford not to deliver on these promises, but also the issue of perceptions. You know, how is the way the EU is portraying, selling itself, being perceived uh, in partner countries? So, so that's the question about the limitations perhaps of the communication and the way the EU has been pushing very strongly on the branding of, of Team Europe and, and Global Gateway. But I think yeah, the, the, the issue here is perhaps that it is adding another layer while at the same time they don't want to to uh, to repeat perhaps the errors or to to try to compensate and and, and uh, regalvanize a bit the momentum around the EU and member states working together. I would just add here perhaps something we didn't really touch upon, but it's also the fact that Team Europe now is is also made more complex because there are more players in the game, more players that, and some of them are not necessarily used to work with the traditional development actors. And I'm thinking of the development finance institutions and more and more the private sector. And this is another major challenge which will make or break, I think, the, the Team Europe uh, approach and initiatives. And perhaps at the end will lead that to the fact that we only have maybe half of the Team Europe initiatives uh, left, but uh, we'll see. Um, Paul, on communication, uh, I, I'm a maybe too cynical, but in my experience, what will happen is the Commission will give a communications firm, probably in Europe, a contract for with lots of zeros. They will go and make, they will fly a videographer to X country. They will make a nice video with Team Europe and people in hard hats and all the images that we're used to. Then... Um, they will pay, as part of that contract, they will pay to elevate that um, on the social networks and then it will garner hundreds of thousands of views because that's what happens with the algorithm when you put money into Instagram or something or whatever it is in the country. And that allows the delegation or whoever it is to turn around and say, look, we've communicated, we've had a big impact. But, of course, it's a ridiculous way to view whether you're winning hearts and minds because if you put enough money into anything on social media, you can get people to look at it. That's not really the, <laughs> not really what's at stake. And I think you're, it, 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 communication is one thing where you have to be really mindful and dig down as much as we can. And I guess civil society has a big role into play in, in this as well in, in the countries we're talking about. What does it actually mean to people? What's it, has it actually improved anyone's life? Um, uh, and that's the question I think all development cooperation should be asking. And I think we fall into a trap sometimes, and I think the Commission's the first victim of this. It's all about communication. It's all about what you're seen to be doing rather than what you're actually doing. Um, and I really hope we really fall into that trap. that trap. I couldn't agree more, I think, uh, Vince, what, what you say. Uh, communication is good, is necessary, necessary, but is not, is enough. not enough. And at the end, at the, end the, results the results count and how 
the EU is also perceived uh, making a difference for, for partner countries and, and populations in those countries. I'm just wondering whether, because we have some of our communication colleagues also here, uh, if they have maybe a few thoughts on, on that, on, on the strong emphasis put on the communication and visibility, which might come at the, at the cost of impact. Um, but perhaps just before that, maybe uh, Paul. I don't know if you would like to uh, come in with uh, with sort of your with your response to what they were saying to your question. If not, I have two other requests uh, from our listeners. Uh, so, Paul, up to you on whether you would like to uh, reply on this. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. Very very briefly, I think it's very important, um, as you say, Alexi and, and Vince, of of making that distinction between winning hearts and minds and visibility and um, yeah, I, I think that's that's something that uh, that Team Europe can look at. Thanks very much. Thank you. Let me see. Then I saw here. Let me see. Ar. Let me just approve this and see. Um, would you like to take the floor, um, or perhaps not? Um, okay. I see that you removed your request to. Uh, to speak, um, but perhaps maybe um, we do have our head of communications here, uh, Virginia. I don't know if you'd like to uh, to uh, come in uh, with with your with your ideas on what was being discussed um, in terms of the communication efforts uh, by the uh, by the Commission on on Team Europe. Um, let me then <laughs> approve uh, your request and uh, feel free to, to, to jump in. Yes. Hi, um, I'm Virginia Muki. I'm the head of Outreach and Impact at ECDPM. Thank you, Alexei. Uh, my, I have a bit of, a, of an issue about criticizing the commission and the institution on the fact that this might be just branding and communication when for decades we've been criticizing them for not communicating enough, being terrible at communicating what they were doing. And partly was their sort of policy because they wanted to be sort of under the radar and trying to do things without being too noticed. So it's true, there are some elements of branding and communication in the Team Europe and you've seen it. And this, frankly, I think has been a whole boost on trying to communicate more visibly since Brexit probably. And this has been, and Team Europe was probably a victim, if you want to say, in that. But I don't necessarily see that as a problem, as long as, obviously, as you have been saying all along, now you start seeing some results, some, some things that are beyond just the communication. Uh, but that, I guess, we will hopefully do it and see it and follow it uh, in the next sort of months and years. Yes, I think yeah. I, I think that I think that's a fair point. Um, I, I guess Virginia, my my problem was I never really thought it was that important in the first place. The communication, and so you, you often see member states and people, you know, that's a, you're right. That's a it's a you know we don't sell what we do well enough as as Europe. But I think of the example as of um, Difford, um, bless its bless its departed soul, and it has a great reputation, and people that I talk to say they missed Difford because it was just really good at doing development, right? So the best communication is just to do the work really well. <laughs> and that's what's going to win hearts and minds probably in finance ministries around the world as well is be be good at what you're doing. Um, so, 
yes, I, I think I take your point that um, that we shouldn't be too hard on the commission. I know that I'm, it's it's an easy to be a punching bag in, in Brussels, and their job is not easy. They are combining lots of you know different interests and trying to do something constructive for Europe's role in the world. But I think the underlying point is just do the work well. That's the best <laughs> the best way to um, to improve your your image around the world. But if I could come in one second, what Vince, I under, I agree. Uh, obviously, get on and do it. And that's what they've been doing. But what happened for decades up until now was they were doing certain things. And when they were doing well, you knew were member states taking all the credits for it. And when there was something doing, done wrong, all the blame was put on Brussels. And that's why we found ourselves with Brexit and and obviously a degree of skepticism. So I also understand now that they are a bit overdoing it on the other side and saying we're great, we're doing everything fantastic and this and we're doing everything together. Uh, but it's also true. And probably at some point you will find the right balance, which is now a bit skewed on the other side. Uh, that's interesting you draw the connection with Brexit because I, I was talking about Europe in the world rather than Europe in, um, in other, the European Commission and how it's viewed in other European, you know, European countries. Um, but it's an interesting connection. I hadn't thought about that. If I may just come in on that, um, I think the, the, the communication is was indeed necessary and, and called upon. Um, perhaps one thing for, for the Commission is is the rapidity, the, the you know the, the enormous efforts that have been put into it, but also the multiplication of different concepts and initiatives, which are you know creating a very confusing landscape. Uh, and not only for our partner countries, uh, you know, in Africa or elsewhere. I think even for the European actors and among you know the most uh, perhaps uh, informed of us it's already hard to to make the, those linkages and and how to understand the different concepts uh, and i think perhaps that's one word of caution is it's all good to be visible and and launch new brands and and initiatives uh, but you know <laughs> that there's also a need to to allow people to understand and digest um, those those uh, processes brands and initiatives yeah. so, so alexi that's, that's, that's... That's, That's so, so telling, telling because I'm looking here at the agenda for what's going to be discussed next week in the latest um, Team Europe meeting. And the first guiding question is, do we share a collective understanding of our ambitions in terms of designing TEI's flagship initiatives that directly support global gateway implementation? So the first question that everyone's going to discuss next week is, do, do we all agree what we're talking about? So I can only agree with you there. Sorry, Katya, I cut you off. No, 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 no worries. And I, I was just actually thinking about like... Um, also about multiple brands that that we have right now at play we have the the flagships we have global gateway we have uh, team europe initiatives and sometimes i also wonder like whether that's going to be something for partner countries that simply it's just quite confusing when you're not in the brussels bubble following all this so it might also be a factor that to a level reduces their interest in what eu is doing let, let me again maybe just insist here it's not just confusing for partner countries in Africa or just beyond the Brussels even the Brussels bubble is confused by by all these concepts and 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 how they interlink with one another and I think as we point out in the paper as well and I said earlier the challenge is also to get to work with new types of actors that are not used to work traditionally with development actors 
Uh, and, and in that sense, there's a lot of work also to make sure that we speak the same language or that we understand the same thing when we use the same words with those with those actors, the DFIs, etc. And, and there's a lot of work to be done in that sense, just in Brussels, just among the Team Europe members. And I think that's already quite a challenge, let alone for, for people outside Brussels and in Africa. Did you guys, in your in, when you're preparing your paper, did you come across private sector actors in Europe who are really engaged in this and beyond the, the development banks I'm talking about, you know, you know, say pension funds or anything like that, because that's the how all of this was began, you know, 2017, 2018 and stuff. There was this talk about all, you know, Sonny, Sonny Kapoor and others talking about all this. There's not a lack of money in Europe. It's, it's a lack of, you know, people just need to know where to put it and be guided in the right way. Um, we need to help the private sector more and with, you know, guess the budget guarantees are one version of that but did you come across in your research for the paper a real appetite amongst companies in Europe and private sector actors to get more involved in what we're talking about? Uh, to answer short, no, we haven't. Uh, we haven't uh, done this uh, this work. We haven't actually uh, reached out to private sector, but we know and we heard quite from various actors, stakeholders, be it within the institutions, the member states or the DFIs themselves, that it is indeed a challenge to bring in the, the, the private sector. And, and this will be the, the big, uh, you know, the big uh, homework to do in the next uh, few years to, to speak to the private sector and get their interest and understand also how they work. Uh, I know that it is a major challenge also for the institutions and perhaps less so for some member states that are already quite used to to engage with their respective private sector. And, and here the, the member states play a key role, obviously. It's funny that we talk about these mythical creatures, the private sector, like where could they be and everything? Like how do we find them? I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I always laugh about that because obviously it's they presumably want to be found. But I'm looking at another one of the guiding questions for the Team Europe meeting next week. The, the, one of the questions the Commission's asking is what practical steps can we take to better share economic intelligence and accompany the European private sector in a way that supports greater development impact in our policy priorities? So clearly the Commission's asking itself this question as well. Area for future work for ECDPM. <laughs> and let me just jump in to ask once for the last time uh, for our listeners, if anyone would like to uh, to jump in with a question or, or a comment. Uh, if not, I think uh, we're sort of reaching the, the, the end of this of this conversation. Um, and maybe just to ask uh, the our three speakers to maybe ch share your, your final uh, thoughts on this before we before we wrap up. And again, yes, if everyone would like to uh, to jump in with with a, a short question or a comment, uh, you are still free to uh, to do so. But if not, maybe Alexa, you can uh, we can uh, start with the with with your wrap up comments on on this conversation that we had today. Well, great, and thanks thanks to to everyone, to you, Kata and, and Virginia from our comms, uh, Vince as well for for opening this discussion and uh, agreeing to take it out of Twitter. I must admit that uh, I've created the Twitter account just for this purpose. Uh, so we'll see how where this takes us. But uh, no, I think uh, it's great to have these, these discussions. Uh, and again, let's continue the, the exchange moving forward on Twitter elsewhere. Um, yeah, there's uh, many, many things still to unpack with regards to Team Europe. Yeah, uh, thanks also from my side. Uh, I think this has been important and interesting conversation and uh, looking forward to continuing this and well I, I think it's true that 
we need more more conversation, more reflection around Team Europe, and this is a great way to do that and to start. Uh, thanks, everyone, for for taking part. I think it's it's great to to use this medium to all get out of our individual heads a bit about this and kind of compare notes about what we do and don't um, understand. Uh, I think. I, I just uh, I had a little shiver when Katya, you were saying we need more conversation about Team Europe because sometimes I feel like I can't I can't hear that <laughs> hear that word again or I'll go I'll go mad. Um, but I don't think you're wrong. At the same time, what I think is we need a more global conversation around Team Europe, and I'd love to hear more about how what we're talking about, what this paper covers, how this is landing around the world. Um, that's a task for journalists, I guess. It's a task for for think tanks. It's um, and perhaps with the commission to share, to be to share with some of us who follow these issues, what does this all of this mean to um, the the people in the countries we're supposed to be helping with um, EU development policy? That's the missing piece of the puzzle for me, um, rather than batches, gateways, TIs, DG meetings, etc. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all three of you, and thank you to everyone that that listened in to uh, to Paul also and Virginia for. For jumping in with with your questions and and your comments, this is recorded, so you will be able to uh, to access this um, after we end uh, our our Twitter space. So yeah, thank you all, and have a very good uh, uh, afternoon. Well, actually Friday. Um, so thank you, everyone, and I'm going to be ending this now. So once again, thank you all, and thank you, Vince, for uh, challenging uh the, the 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 paper and the ideas that were put forward on this i'm very, so, very i'm so starved <laughs> of press conferences about development policy that i've turned my attention to think tanks so I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful for the conversation thanks <laughs> thank you and thank you everyone bye <laughs>